all right folks welcome to the monsters madness and magic podcast i'm your host justin here with a quick word before we dive in now in this episode i chat with game developer ceo of pirate software and hacker jason thor hall about internet security classic games coast to coast am his game heartbound and more As always, if you're listening on your podcasting platform of choice out there and you'd like to help the show grow, please leave us a review. And if you happen to be watching the video on YouTube, please like, comment, subscribe, all that good stuff because it does help. Anyway, without further ado, here you go. Greetings, boils and ghouls. This is your comrade, the Crypt Keeper here, reporting dead from the sanctuary of the strange. Tonight's macabre myth is a fright-filled feature, one overflowing with monsters, madness, and magic. <laughs> All right, Thor, man, take us back in time. You're a youngster. Are you a book reader, fort builder, troublemaker? Are you all of the above? Dude, I was all of the above. <laughs> all right. Year. Oh, man, I caused so many problems as a kid. It was ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. Whereabouts did you grow up? I grew up in Southern California, actually. So, um, yeah, I, I, God, I'm trying to remember. It's like Coast the Mesa and Tustin, like so all around Orange County. Gotcha, around gotcha. a lot of different places yeah i lived all over the place you said you read books you know did you have maybe a a writer an author or a genre that you lean towards not really i i do like fantasy you know mm-hmm. more than more than a lot of anything you know i, I grew up on on s- stuff like harry potter you know grew up on on things like I, actually do you know Anne mccaffrey yeah the whole dragon riders appearance yeah. yeah like i was super into that you know and Anne rice's stuff so like all the vampire stuff like i was super into all of that you know and uh, it, i read a lot of that as a kid you know growing up absolutely legend the amount of books that she wrote like holy moly too Some, sometimes like 10 a year or some ridiculousness like how do you do that she's like a printer uh, <laughs> Anne rice the same way <laughs> yeah oh yeah mind-boggling you know when you think back to formative films and tv shows you grew up on what comes to mind you said oh, harry Potter, yeah yeah, yeah, but for like films, yeah. not so much. I like the books better, I think, for me. I'm trying to think. Films going all the way back, because it's going to be like Hackers. The movie Hackers is fantastic. Stuff like Lost Boys is oh, phenomenal. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. in terms of TV shows like Stargate SG-1 mm. and Star, Star Trek Next Generation, I always like, like Star Trek a lot, especially TNG. TNG is just good. Teaches a lot of really good values. Really enjoy that. Sliders. Love the hell out of Sliders. Sliders was great, man. It was it was a really good show and it just disappeared and I was very sad about it. I'm trying to like that that takes me back because there's a lot of stuff because like my dad was in cinematics so we watched tons of movies all the time. I got to I was exposed to tons of media as a kid mm-hmm. like tons and tons of movies and I kind of got a, a general style for the types of things that I liked. But that's that's why I ended up watching all those things. He's like we're gonna watch Stargate SG One. I was like why? And then I was like oh this is actually really cool. You know. Yeah. <laughs> You know, from from OG techies, I feel like the next generation just gets a lot of a lot of hate. Yeah, it does. Some people. I I think the reason why I like it so much is because it's a a journey of, you know, Picard being just a complete jackass in the beginning. (laughs) He's just he's an awful, awful (laughs) captain. And then by the end, he's just brilliant, you know, and and you can see his character growth through through the entire series. And it's it's great. You know, it's really, really a good story. It's a very hero's journey for that. And I, I liked it. 
I like it a lot. And I, I think if you just watch like a piece of it, the context doesn't come through. You have to watch it all, the whole thing. And it is bingeable. You can just sit down and do the whole thing. You know? Oh, like, for sure, for sure. Your dad was obviously, you know, techie, a gamer type. What was your first gaming system? Oh, geez. It was a DOS box when I was a kid. And I can't even remember the games that I was on. Because, like, when I was really young, my dad was like, oh, I don't want you playing games because, like, it might be bad, and, you know, all these types of things. And, like, he wouldn't let me play Diablo or any of that stuff when they launched it. It was like, oh, no, it's going to be bad for the youth, you know. And, and then later he's like, oh, it doesn't matter. None of this matters. It's fine. You can just go play these things. And I finally got to go play it. But, yeah, first first machine was a DOS box ages and ages and ages ago. I'm trying to remember what else. I played console for a little while. I never was much, much of a console gamer, though, like, to be honest with you. I think the last time I did that was back in, like, Destiny 1 days and that was it it was the last time i was really into console but outside of that game boy was huge so not normal consoles but like handheld consoles i've played everything on game boy since forever you know like every iteration of of handheld that they've brought out i've you know i've even hell i've got my game boy micro right here (laughs) yeah i've had those for ages you know and i i still play games on them today in fact i just got a little device that lets me play them on original hardware into my computer, which is pretty nice. Holy shit. So yeah, I'm really into that. Like super into the handhelds. Yeah, I remember being mind blown when the SP first came out. Oh yeah. It, it's crazy to me to see how far they've pushed handhelds like that, where the battery life is amazing now too. Cause like you can play on some of those for just like twenty four hours no problem now without charging it. But like when I grew up, <laughs> we were like scrounging the batteries out of the TV <laughs> remotes and shit. Like that's not like we were just stealing. It was like, where's the TV remote better? I don't know. Definitely not playing games in the bathroom. You know, like that's <laughs> that's how that was. You know, like they just absorbed the hell out of all the power sources in the house. So yeah, and you know, since uh, smartphones are so common now and everyone has them, when you had those handhelds, there was no other way that you had technology like driving in the car, going to the grocery store, or something. You know, it's like yeah. first time you could take a game with you, and it was just crazy yeah the, the first iteration of that too there was no backlights yeah so like it was one of those things where you know your mom would be driving down the street you're sitting in the back seat playing the game boy and you're like i'm gonna choose a move for my pokemon every time a light goes by <laughs> and like that was that was the thing you know yeah. like we we played like that and it, unless you were you were cool enough to have the squiggly light which not all of us had the squiggly light i got one later but it was it was a long time later you know <laughs> yeah i would just use a headlamp sometimes so uh, what sort of music was uh, playing around the house when you were growing up? Honestly, music wasn't that big to me mm. until I was like older. I used to listen to radio shows all the time. So when I was younger, I'd, I'd listen to Coast to Coast because okay. it was like way late at night. I'd get home from school and I'd turn on the radio. I was like, oh, it's Coast to Coast. I'm going to hear about the weird stuff, you know, and, <laughs> and I'd, so I'd listen to that all the time. And I still do. I actually still listen to Coast to Coast. I've got a, a software defined radio that I run out of, my, out of my office here and I just have an antenna and I listen to Coast to Coast on it. It's quite funny. I never would have guessed that, man. Art Bell days, uh, the glory days. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Hell, yeah. So all the Art Bell stuff and now, God, there's they've changed hosts so many times now, but I still like Art Bell stuff the most. Like, yeah, that, you can't be that uh, smoker's voice. No. Yeah. He, yeah the, the, I can't even do it. He's got that super deep, gravelly voice, man. Blew me away. Hey man, you got a you got a stern thing going on yourself. I know you've heard yeah, it, I know, uh, right? but, but you hear it all the time. But as a stern listener growing up, that's the first thing that kind of caught my yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I listen to Howard Stern too, but that was that's because my dad would listen to it on the radio, like in the yeah. car. So listen to Howard Stern all the time, and then uh, then he went to like XM Radio. I don't think I've ever heard anything of his his again. He went to satellite, and he just disappeared. I mean, obviously it's worked for him, but you know, for the us normal listeners, I'm not 
jump in ship to listen to Howard Stern, but if he was on yeah. Terrestrial, I'd still listen to him. One hundred percent. I think I think satellite was one of those things where it was like, well, I guess he's gone. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I never heard anything from him again. Yeah, Thor is something I like to ask everyone, just because you never know uh, what scared you as a kid. Oh man, hmm. I was really into paranormal stuff as a kid. Because obviously, you know, like listen to Coast to yeah, Coast. Coast to Coast, you got to be. I'm go find some. But like, I was always worried something like that would just be like, oh, it would ruin your life. You know, like a curse or something like that. <laughs> but, you know, like, I, I think that was probably the scariest thing to me. And now that I'm older, scariest thing that I have now is like, oh, the tax man is probably the most horrifying <laughs> thing that exists as an adult human being in the planet. It's like, oh, the IRS is going to eat my lunch. Fantastic. You know, like that's, it's not, there's not that much that's scary anymore. It's It's mostly like, like when I was a kid, it was mostly like stuff like that, the unknown sort of thing. So now it's like, oh, it's the known things that are way scarier. That's way more horrifying, frankly. Yeah, it seems like when you get older, you lean towards the unknown to escape the real stuff. <laughs> oh, yeah. Now you're like, wait a minute. I like it over there. It's, yeah. it's weirder. You know, I'm going to do that instead. You know, you said you didn't play consoles that much, but what about specific games? Uh, what are some formative games that you grew up on? Final Fantasy series really early on. I, I loved Final Fantasy. I loved Dragon Quest. I'm trying to think of what else. There's there's like a lot of really, really interesting games that I've played. I've got a ton of them now. Actually, Boktai. There's a really good example. You ever played Boktai before? I have not. So Boktai was actually a Kojima game, which is wild to think about, like way back then, like Hideo Kojima, right? It's a cartridge that has a solar sensor on the back so that you can fight vampires using the actual sun. Holy Which shit. now you understand how it's a Kojima game, right? Yeah. And there's there's two of them. There's a third one that's in Japan, but like I've had those since I was a kid. And like things like that really changed the way that I saw media, where it's like, wait a minute, we can build a custom device to sense the sun. It's actually a UV detector, right? So that we can fight vampires in a video game. That's the coolest controller I've ever heard, right? Like that's so damn awesome. And then you had things like Kirby's Tilt and Tumble and stuff like that, where they have weird control methods too. And they just kind of stuck with me. That always just stuck with me, like neat, neat ideas, different ways to play games, you know. Speaking of sort of antiquated gaming technology, do you remember the Dex Drive? The Dex Drive. Let me go look this thing up. See, because I asked, I, I interviewed James Roth recently, and he had, uh, with all his little quirky stuff he does, I'd assume he had run across one, never heard of it. I don't even know what that is. Never even heard of that, no. Jeez, man. Well, it was like this little uh, device that you could hook into your computer and then put your memory card into the slot and then download other people's uh, saves. I have never seen that, man. See, I never got into like modding the games yeah. or like <laughs> editing save files or any of that stuff. I just, I just played them, you know, like that was the biggest thing for me. And I got a ton of them still, but. No, never did that. I ne I didn't even have a Game Shark or any of that. Like right. everybody always had a Game Shark. Like, I'm gonna edit my save and shoot the video <laughs> game. It's like, dude, I didn't even have that stuff. I just played the game. See, that's what it was for. Because uh, I had a, one of those CDX Game Sharks, and mine didn't work. So the only way that I could get the code to work was to download someone else's save file oh, that could get it to work. It was just sense. a whole going around your elbow thing. <laughs> yeah, there there was always like moments like that. There were always weird things of like like different devices and all kinds of homebrew stuff and like different ways to like cheated stuff. Like I remember when missing no was found in like Pokemon red and blue and then like everyone at school is like, you gotta get your missing no. And everyone's save file gets corrupted and it just goes to shit. You yeah. know? <laughs> like uh, there was a whole nightmare. I still remember the steps to get that thing surfing up and down the, uh, Cinnabar Island gym. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah it's right up on the side there yeah. until it hits. And then you're like, cool. My file's deleted. <laughs> so how early on do you begin to maybe experiment creatively, you know, become interested in making your own stuff? Not in just games, but obviously 
short stories super and stuff young. go into games and stuff too. Yes, super, super young. So I was in elementary school. I would, this is so funny. I used to draw bookmarks and then sell them to other kids. I'd be like, yeah, I'll make you a bookmark for a quarter. And I actually ended up getting a lot of money doing that. I was like, cool. Like, I'm actually running a business. Right? Yeah. And I would just draw all kinds of stuff and then put them on there and then people would buy them. And then later on, I um, in high school, I became the, the leader of comic book club. So I started comic book club, but it wasn't, like we're collecting comics, it was we're making them. Oh, so everyone's making comic books and like doing this kind of stuff, and that was a lot of fun. That's actually when I made the comic that is Heartbound today, because I made it when I was like sixteen. And then after that, I just kept making stuff. I just kept doing things, and it was like mostly side project stuff and like trying things and working freelance and doing everything like that. But it just never stopped. Now, do you also do the art side of things? So I do art for myself now. I used to do it for like freelance for money, mm-hmm. and I found that it remove something from that that I really enjoyed when I pinned work onto it. And I was like, no, I kind of just want to do this because I want to do this for me, you know? So I stopped doing art side, visual stuff for work. The only thing that I do now for visual side stuff is technical art. So I do uh, particle effects, lighting, shadows, you know, things like that. And then the visual framing for the games. Cause like, I like doing that very, you know, kind of make it as cinematic as I can. And it, that's fun for me. And it's it's at that realm where it's like, no, I like doing this and I like doing this for work. Not just I like doing it, you know. You know, so you know, beyond all the technical aspects of building a game, if the storytelling falls short, you know, it's off or not. So have you experimented since those early days, the comic days that you mentioned? Have you uh, written any fiction or anything like that? Oh, yeah. I wrote all of Heartbound. All of it. Mm. So I'm the programmer, writer, and designer for the game. And there's thousands of routes through it right now. And that means like, tons and tons of different timelines that people can do. And I had to make sure that every one of those storylines fits narratively based on the choices the player made. It's not a small task with writing. It's it's quite a huge amount. But like we've also translated it into six different languages. So making sure that the puns work in like Brazilian Portuguese, making sure that a joke is appropriate in Japan, right? You know, like we have to localize that as well. So I have to work with the translators to make sure that the original English comes through but is contextually like funny for people in another area of the world, you know? So it's not, it's not simple that way either. It's actually, it's a good puzzle. It's a lot of fun to do, to be honest with you. And that's, this is probably the largest writing project I've ever taken on, but it won't be the last. I'm just trying to understand, you know, trying to, uh, someone who writes short stories and scripts and stuff like that, how does the outlining or process look for a game? Is there a lot of go with the flow and fix it later type of deal? I actually, I learned how to do that in Dungeons and Dragons. So mm. what I do a lot of, th- yeah, I played D&D for years, right? Like I, I, God, it's going on 20 years now. Jesus, it's <laughs> <laughs> old now, you know, but no, I, um, I started that there and it's basically like, I have the characters as they are at the beginning of the story. I have the characters as they are at the end of the story. And I work from the outside inwards towards the middle to figure out what is it that changes them to reach that point. And I may have the characters that they have to interact with, but it's like, okay, this character has these aspirations, this character has these traits, they have this mentality, they have this way of perceiving the world. If I were to role play that character, how would they react to this scenario? And I basically just kind of step into each character, role play each one in that scenario while still working towards that end goal for the story. And it's the same thing that I learned from D&D. And a lot of that comes from the fact that in D&D, you're just role playing characters with other people that are playing your game, you know, and it it ended up being like a model that worked and it actually allows me to go forward with the story, especially in a choose your own adventure one, you know, like where they are actually choosing the choices. So it's not just static. 
Yeah. I think that'd probably be harder for me if it was all static. So can you pinpoint where along your journey growing up that you decided that you wanted to pursue gaming professionally or game development professionally? Or did it just sort of happen yeah. that way? So like I always kind of wanted to do that. I was always like, man, one day I'm going to do that. I'm working in AAA. One day I'm going to go, you know, leave AAA and do this. And then it was it was funny because Undertale came out and I was like, the hell am I waiting for? Right. <laughs> like if 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 somebody can go make something like this and they can do it where there's there's flaws in it there's like art flaws there's like storyline there's little pieces that are you know it's an indie right and you see that and you're like well why am i not doing this like why am i waiting in triple a am i really getting the skills that i need here to go make the thing that i really want to make one day or am i just spinning my wheels it turned out i was just spinning my wheels so i i actually applied at blizzard to go do what is called the side projects and uh side project committee i was the first one that got approved and i went and made a tiny arcade game and that little arcade game did okay, but it set the ground groundwork for me to be like, okay, I can go make things now because mm-hmm. I can make a game. We can launch it on Steam. We can do all the Steam trading cards, and the achievements, and everything that goes along with that. And now that we have it out there, I know how to patch it. I know how to build a game in the market and tell people about it. And it's like, okay, let's go make stuff. And we started, you know, started running with it and made an RPG and just went. And that was that's Heartbound. And the first one was Champions of Breakfast. And it's it's worked out really, really nicely because it was one of those things where I always wanted to do it. I just didn't take the chance. And at that point, it was like, I'm just going to take the chance now. Like, screw it. You know, there's what what's going to happen if I fail? I still have a day job, right? Yeah. Like, it's fine. The relationship with Blizzard. I mean, obviously, your dad worked there. Did he just you know help you yeah. get in the door initially? So he did back in in 2004. So there was a bit of nepotism that happened there, which I don't like, right? So like right. I stayed there for about six months and I was terrible at the job. I was awful, 100%. And I left because I, it was like a lot of shame from that. It's like, I only got this job because of you. I'm not very good at it. This sucks, you know? So I left and I went freelance for about five years and I made stuff online. I um, I actually built things in Second Life, as funny as that is. Did a whole ton of commissions, actually moved out, went off and lived on my own in Colorado and, and like learned programming, learned how to do 3D modeling and texturing and like releasing things and, and, you know, living on my own, off my own creations, everything like that. And then I came back to Blizzard in 2009 and I applied again and I got the job without him. And that was the whole point for me was to make sure that I got a job at a place like that, not w- without his help, you know, because it, it, it can't, it can't be a good thing. It's never a good thing to have nepotism be there because some people will close doors on you just based on the fact that you are related to someone. Some people open doors for you that you don't deserve based on the same thing. And no one knew that he was my dad until like, until I think I was, I was leaving QA to go to Battle.net because mm. I had started a team on Battle.net, which was application security. And I became the lead of App- AppSec there. And uh, my boss in QA was like, why are you talking to Joey Ray? Because I was talking to him in the, like in the quad in front of you know, like in the middle of campus at Blizzard, and I was like, "That's my dad." And he goes, "What?" <laughs> just like freaked him out. I was like, "Yeah, that's him." You know, like, I just never told you because it's not relevant to my job. You know, that's kind of the point. So yeah, no, no one knew, and it was like it was kind of like an open secret, I guess. The people who knew knew, but it didn't matter, and that was the whole idea behind it. Because it's it's never a good thing, man. It'll it'll never do you any good to get jobs through nepotism. You'll just end up not knowing anything and people won't respect you for who you are. That first stint that your dad did help you with, do you think there was some resentment with the people that knew? I don't know if there was any resentment because it was like me and another person. It's me and this guy, Benny. And um, we were really young. Like, we were just kind of young, dumb kids. And they're like, oh, they got game testers in there. And I I think the first week that I worked there, we broke CDs. Like that was my job, was to break CDs in a small room. Because <laughs> like we had, we had this little like, shredder machine 
that you put the CD in and it like covers it in dots and destroys the CD. And it's just, it broke within like the third CD. And I was like, well, guess we're breaking all these CDs. We just had to shatter them all. It was like a mess into a big cardboard box. So I don't think there was a lot of resentment, mostly because we were doing, well, let's be honest, we were doing kind of bitch work, right? Yeah. <laughs> really what it was, so. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, Thor, but I think you've mentioned uh, multiple times that a lot of your work at Blizzard was bonding, uh, sorry, banning botters. In that job, was there one that one botter specifically that you can think of that maybe you were impressed at their methods or <laughs> were they oh, yeah. extra clever? <laughs> there was actually a dude that I never caught. I, I think about it all the time. I've talked about it on stream before too. Like there was this guy that had made a ton of map hacks, right? Tons of map hacks for the games and they wanted to go after him and everything like that. And they, they finally decided, Hey, we're going to go after him. We're going to send you after him. Cause you're good at catching people with this stuff. So I was like, okay, I'm going to go after this dude. I look up everything he had made for like 15 years. Cause he'd been doing it a long time every single possible thing pulled all the original files not even ones that are like oh that's still available for download like no we got the original files guy had scrubbed everything clean he had there was absolutely no file pass on anything there was no naming anywhere he was clean from the start and i was like that is ridiculous who are you right <laughs> so i got pretty obsessed with this for like six months and they like there was nothing that i could find and i brought it back and said there's nothing we can do and i think they they eventually went after his like monetary. They, they went after his PayPal. They subpoenaed his PayPal. And they found the dude had never transferred any money away. So it was like, even that was a shell that didn't matter. It was just like a leaderboard for the dude. And I was like, God, God damn it. You know, like there's, we're never going to get him, right? And um, it, it turned out like the whole time he was taunting everyone too. So he'd do things like order merchandise in the middle of a forest in Vermont with a stolen credit card with his name. You know, like just like, you bastard. Like we were always, always trying to find this dude and you just couldn't get him. And that was it. And I, I think about it now and I'm, I, he's probably still out there and like tip of the hat to you because he's the only <laughs> one I couldn't get, man. He bothers me all the time. I'm like, dude, who is he? You know, it's like, is he as an insider? Is he just some kid? Like what happened there? But he'd been doing it for so long that he had to be an expert somewhere. Yeah. So clearly he knew what he was doing. Oh, he hundred percent did. And it's, that's rare. Usually people make a mistake, right? Even people who leak things inside of the company, like, They'll be like, oh, I'm going to I'm going to take a screenshot with my phone and I'm going to release it on the Internet. No one will know it's me because it's from a phone. And it's like, dude, you were on company Wi-Fi when you did that. Like, what? Are you, <laughs> what? Like, you know, it's just like you, you'll see those types of things. And then you have someone like this who's actually truly good. Someone who's really secret, you know, and that's that's very rare. You know, so obviously just sticking on Blizzard for a second. They've been sure. dealing with some issues in recent years. Uh, yeah. Can you take us through a bit of the bullshit that you dealt with during your time there, if you don't mind? Yeah, sure. So I um I ended up quitting Blizzard because of the bullshit, 100%. I saw a lot of really bad stuff when I was there. I saw a lot of really terrible things. And I also saw, like, you know, a lot of good stuff with with people that I got to work with. But it was usually management, kind of middle management, usually had the biggest problem. It, it The best way you can describe it is festering, right? You have a lot of people that have a lot of power that try to impose that power instead of just trying to do best by the players and best by the business, right? And that got really old really quick. I ended up leaving QA as a result of that because it was really, really toxic and really underpaid. As a good example of this, when I started at Blizzard, I was paid ten fifty an hour on iCrew. When I left, and that's Southern California. So the going rate at the time for like Trader Joe's being a grocery store bagger was 12 bucks an hour. And Shit, I was paid 1050. Man. Yeah, it's awful, right? So I was on night crew during that. And one day they told us when we came in, hey, we've got a really critical task. You gotta go do this task. Everyone's doing the same task together. And they gave me this, this sheet that had like 30 plus questions on it, like 30 plus steps. And they're like, make sure to read the entire task. So I sit down and read the entire task. And like step 16 
is turn off your computer, get up from your desk, walk out of the room. And I was like, that's weird. So I read the rest of the task. I read it again. And I get up out of my desk and I walk out of the room. The last two people to walk out of the room got fired. We were all going to day crew and they needed to cut two people. And that's how they decided to do it. That was the first moment that I realized this place is a shit show, actually. Like this is that's terrifying. That makes no sense. And that's how they got fired. And we moved over to day crew when I moved over to day crew and I like signed all the stuff and everything like that. Um, I, I don't know if it was that I didn't pay very much attention or if they didn't explain it to me. The next paycheck, I was like, why is this so little? Like what happened? My pay had gone down to $10 an hour from 1050. So I went to talk to my manager. I was like, what's going on? And he's like, oh, the 50 cents an hour was a night crew differential. You lost it when you went to days. And it's like, I didn't have a choice. I didn't choose to go to days. You, you dissolved the team, but I had to eat it, right? So then I got moved into StarCraft II, Wings of Liberty, and we worked two years straight of overtime on Wings of Liberty. Two years straight of OT. Sometimes six, seven days a week, sometimes 10, 12 hours a day. It was a mess, man. I, I don't play that game to this day. I, <laughs> I don't blame it, you, you know? dude. <laughs> but I was on the editor team for that, and it was, uh, it was in QA on the editor team. It was, it was a mess. And uh, the reason why we had so much overtime on that was mismanagement because the QA leads idea for this was that uh, his quote is the weirdest quote I've ever heard in my life. We will get ahead of development. QA is not able to do that you can't test things that are not ready yet so at the time i was like that doesn't make a lot of sense but okay boss you know like i like my job you know i'm gonna do that and uh everyone else was like this doesn't make any damn sense i was like you're right and i was like are we gonna do anything about it nah you know like whatever we're getting a lot more money i guess you know but like everyone's burning out everyone's just working shitloads of hours and it was it was awful and it, it made no sense it made absolutely no sense at all you cannot get ahead of development as qa you test things that are ready for test and that's it and uh, that was it you know i think the other thing that i learned in there was a kind of a toxic culture thing that we see across the industry right now as well which is the idea that qa and dev are somehow different that they're separate in some way a lot of weird like kind of class vibes where it's like, oh, those are the cool kids. We're just, you know, we're the under people, you know, it doesn't, and that doesn't make any sense. QA and development is the same damn team and it always has been. Yeah. And, it, and that, that's something that I learned when I was there, not because they taught the right practice, but because they taught the wrong practice. Mm. And that, that showed me like, no, this is wrong. Like QA and development is the same team. And the first time I, I saw that done well was actually Overwatch. So Overwatch one had embedded QA. So QA was with development in the same area, and that game turned out phenomenal. And it shows, it shows that that model works, you know. But outside of that, it was just always, it was always things like that, where it's just like, what are you, why are you doing this in the worst possible way? <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. And why are you just treating people so badly? You know, it's expendable sort of behavior. It's weird. It was awful. Right. And when you start noticing how shitty this is, do you ever approach your dad just to ask him, you know, has this always, is this commonplace? You know, did you, did this happen when you were there or what's going yeah. on? Was there management I've talked changes? To him about it. Yeah. I've talked to him about it before. And he, he, since he was the director of cinematics, he was like, I can save my team, but I can't save anything outside of this. So he would strive to try and keep the cinematics team taken care of. And he's still friends with basically everyone who's worked under him as a result of that. You know, that's really what that comes down to is if you treat your people correctly, they'll always be willing to work with you going forward into the rest of your career. And so I've I've taken that and done the same thing for myself. You know, I make sure that all of our people are paid, our moderators are paid even. Like, and a lot of mods don't get paid on Twitch. It's usually like a free thing. So yeah, make sure that everybody's taken care of. Post Blizzard, where do you head directly after that 
I wanted to ask you, you know, it's funny since you mentioned Coast to Coast, too. I have this written down here that uh, when you worked with the feds, could you tell us any about the X-Files? No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, I, don't, I can't tell you anything about that, actually. So when I worked for the Department of Energy, the best thing that I can tell you is I, I hacked power plants for the federal government. That was my last job. And uh, they flew me around the country to hack those facilities. And it was to keep our power grid safer. That's it. That's all I got for you. I, I wish I could tell you more, but I can't because they'll appear out of my walls or something, man. Like, it's not good. But no, that was that was my last major job before this. But yeah, after Blizzard, I, I ended up going to Amazon Game Studio. It was right up the street. It's like four minutes away. They flew me up to Seattle, did like a 10 hour long interview, flew me back down to California and they gave me a job in California. I was like, why? Are you, why? But OK, fine. You know, whatever. So I did that, I uh, got the job there, and I was doing automation frameworks for the Lumberyard game engine, which was a mess. It was a complete mess. And it's because they took a slice of CryEngine, turned it into their own engine, and it was, it was just not good, you know? So I found a bunch of vulnerabilities on that, and at that time, I... Yeah, are you aware of DEF CON? You ever seen DEF CON before? Mm -mm. So DEF CON's a hacking convention in Vegas every year. About 30,000 of us show up and, you know, hack the planet, have some fun, <laughs> do some cool shit. Sounds terrifying. And we compete. Yeah, it's, it's a little <laughs> terrifying. But we uh, we compete with each other, and we have this thing called a black badge, an Uber badge, right? So if you win a challenge, there's a chance that challenge will be nominated as a black badge challenge. You don't know till the end, right? And it, if you get a black badge, you go to DEF CON for free for life. And it is highly regarded among you know our, our community of people. Uh, I got three in a row. So DEF CON 23, 24, and 25. Hat trick is not like a normal thing to get. So the first one, people are like, wow, I got one. And the second one, they're like, wait a minute. And the third one, while I was at Amazon Game Studio, the DOE, you know, approached me and they're like, hey, do you want to go, do you want to go hack those power plants? And I was like, I love money. So like, yes, you know. <laughs> so that time of my, my life, I was like, holy shit, I'm finally being paid like a human being. That was yeah. the first job, like, you know, leaving Blizzard and going to Amazon Game Studio. I tripled my pay. And it was like for 10% of the workload. So I was like, oh my God, I could, I have money. I could do things now, right? You know, I can, I can eat more than once a day, maybe, you know? <laughs> and that was like, that was a really big eye opener. So there was a, there was a little bit of gold lust happening at that time in my life where I was like, I'm going to, yeah, the government's going to pay me even more done. I'm in. And I got to, you know, hack power plants. It's kind of cool shit. I get to learn a bunch of stuff, find out how, how all this stuff works. And then uh, I stayed there for a year. And then on my seven person team, four people quit the same day. They went to go make their own security firm. Ah. So they wanted to increase my, my hours from 10 weeks of, of work a year flying around the country to 30 with the same pay. And I was like, dude, I'm not like that's more than half the year. I wouldn't be at home. Like, what's the point of even I just live out of hotels at that point. Right. I quit and I was like, I'm going to take two weeks. Maybe I'll go back to Amazon because they were offering me a position for a lead security position to do security for their games. And uh, it was still open. They, they did that when I was leaving and it was still open there. And I was like, I'm going to figure out what I want to do. And two days later, Jack Septic, I played our game Heartbound and the community just blew up. And I was like, well, guess I'm doing this then. And I <laughs> have never stopped and I've just been doing it ever since. So feel free to shut me down on this. But were you encouraged or discouraged about how easy or hard it was to hack the power plants? Dude, I wish I could tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> Got uh, it. <laughs> There are only, there's very few things I can't tell you, but that's definitely yeah. one of them. You know? I'd have to ask. I'm sorry. <laughs> we'll no, it's all on. good. It's all good. <laughs> You're fine. You, you know, shots for trying. You know? Exactly. Like, fun. <laughs> so when it comes to, you know, your average gaming user, what would you say is the uh, most egregious password protection error a lot of people make? Using the same password across multiple platforms is so common. It's, it's absurd. I can't even describe to you how many times I've been on a pen test and there's a number of employees that have 
the same password as like something else, like an OnlyFans or some ridiculous thing that gets knocked over, right? And we will get like a password list. We just try it against their employee account. It's like we get into like maybe 10 to 20% of them. And it's it's just because you use the same damn password. You know, don't do that. Even if you have two-factor enabled, if you're using the same password on a website that gets its password stolen and you have two-factor on that site, but you don't have two-factor on another site and you use the same password, I'm in. You know, like it's, it's such a common failure, such a lame failure to like use different passwords on every site, use two-factor on everything you can, and that's it. And uh, you said earlier that the comic you were working on when you were younger, that was the Heartbound comic, right? Yes. So for folks that may not be familiar of uh, what Heartbound entails, just give us an elevator pitch for the game. Sure. So I really like games that include choice, and I found that a lot of the ones that I could play out there didn't really give me choice, right? Things like Mass Effect and Fallout 4, like they, they tout that they're going to be really tr- player choice driven, but the choices generally end up not mattering, right? So I wanted to create Butterfly Effect the game. And that means everything that you do, something changes somewhere. So how long it takes you to pick up an object? Do you pick up that object or not? Do you talk to a character or not? Do you choose what options with those characters? How long does it take you to do that? Do you answer a question or do you wait when the question prompt comes up? There's all kinds of different things that get stored for this. And because of that, the game has thousands of routes. It's taken me about the last seven years, minus two years because I had COVID. almost bit it on that, which sucked. But uh, so it's been about five years of dev time doing this. And it's mostly just every possible interaction I could think of. And I, to be real with you, it's incredibly complex. Even fight scenes that I have, because I have, I have a boss fight in there that has like 72 routes in it. Totally different dialogue every single time, totally different outcomes, completely different you know, movesets that they'll use, all kinds of stuff for that one encounter. And most rooms are between 12 to 100 routes based on the choices the player has made. And to be real with you, we've got 60,000 sales and they still haven't found everything. And they probably never will. There are pieces of that game that I have made that likely no one will ever see, or maybe just one or two people will see out of all of that. And I'm fine with that. I'm okay with creating very niche kind of experiences through this as long as they make sense, you know, as long as they make narrative sense with that. So I take a a long period of time to build each room. It's funny too, because we were like, oh, only one more room got made in a month. It's like, yeah. Go play it again. Go try it again. Go try doing something different. You'll see what happens, right? And then people try and they're like, wait a minute. The whole environment changes. There's a whole chapter I, I couldn't access before. There's characters I've never met, you know? And that's the kind of thing that I wanted to have in that old school 2D pixel art kind of game, you know? And th- the inspirations for me, the biggest ones are Secret of Mana, Secret of Evermore, the Earthbound series for the art style that we have, mostly Mother 3 for that, and then WarioWare for the combat system. Because I love me some weird mini games, you know. Right. Same same time period. I grew up in the same time period as like you know devs of Lisa, Knuckle Sandwich, Undertale. All like, we're all echoing Earthbound at the end of the day. Frankly, speaking of uh, choices and games, I know you've been playing it from a game dev perspective. What do you think of Larian and Baldur's Gate Three and all the just amount of ridiculous choices and different scenarios that game has? I think it's absolutely phenomenal. I love seeing that. That's That was really inspiring to me because it was like, I thought this was only doable by people like me in the indie scene. You know, you, you don't get to see that kind of stuff, those types of risks being taken from AAA most of the time. And seeing something like BG3 come out where they they were allowed to take those kind of risks and make such a, a deep and interesting experience that can go so many different ways, that's great. And I know the monumental QA task that that was to make sure that all of that worked. Because it's, it's not easy at all. It's really, really, really hard, you know, to make sure that every route makes narrative sense, every route actually works. There's there's so many paths there. And 
I guarantee there's going to be things that people find in that game for years to come. It's the same same kind of an idea. What would you say is the most challenging aspect of game development, specifically on the indie level? Mental. 100% mm. the mental side. We, we live in a time where the tools are more accessible than ever before. You can use things like Godot or GameMaker for relatively f like free or relatively cheap. You know, you can use all kinds of different tools like Ace Sprite that are super cheap or even like, you know, different other pixel editing programs that are free. You know, you've got Blender for 3D stuff. The tool sets are there. You We can just use those now, no matter where you are in the world. Sitting down and making something and showing it to someone else and being able to absorb that feedback in a way that doesn't tear you apart is very difficult for new devs. And the other thing that's really difficult is starting. Many people will be like, I'm going to make a game one day. I was like that, right? You just have to do it. And you live in a time where it's easier than any other time in history to do so. It is so easy and so cheap to get into this now that there's no reason to wait. But a lot of people kind of have that idea of unless I make a big AAA game, no one's ever going to care. Okay, we'll go look at VVVVV, right? Look at that. That's amazing. And people really love it. Go look at Thomas Was Alone. It's a game about rectangles and it'll make you cry. Go look at Suits of Business RPG. It's drawn by hand, scanned into a computer and put up into a video game on Steam. Like there's so many weird and wild ideas out there. And people just focus on the major triple A's and MOBAs and MMOs and everything. And they want to do that because they think that's the only thing that people care about. And it's not true. There's so much more out there. Well said. How are, how did you or are you dealing with the mental side yourself? Oh, I'm fine. I'm doing great, man. I've been ever since that beginning part where it's like I have enough income to pay my bills. I may live really frugally, right? Because I've I've done that for years. But in the beginning, I was making under federal minimum wage, and I still could survive off of that. And as long as I could pay my bills, I'm doing fine, man. Like. <sighs> Because I, I know I know the way that I want the game to be, and I know that when people give me feedback, whether it's angry or positive, I know that they're it's because they care, right? Mm. They care about the game enough that they want to give that kind of feedback to make it a better experience for themselves, and they think that it'll make it a better experience for other people as well. Sometimes that's correct. Sometimes that's not correct. But each time that that happens, it's like, okay, cool. I can take this, and maybe I can do something with it. And it's not because they're a jerk, even when they're mad, right? It's because they care enough to leave a comment. Most people aren't going to leave a comment on your game when they don't like it. Most people just silently refund and they walk away. So if somebody leaves you negative feedback, listen to it. Even if you don't think they're right, find out how they got to the point where they feel that way about your game. You know, what did you do to set the expectation where they feel like this? If you did something, you know, sometimes it's not your fault, but it's always something to learn from, you know. My buddy Jason said, so uh, I know you're talking to Thor today. Ask him if he knows why the dodge mechanic in the console version of Diablo 3 was never implemented on the PC version. That shit drives me up the wall. I don't know. I worked on Diablo 3 console, though, but I was doing automation on that. Right? Ah. I was in QA at the time, and I built, <laughs> I built custom hardware for us to do automation, which was nuts. But, like, I don't know what the design choice for that was, man. And it's funny because... Even though I worked on that for so long, I've never played the console version of Diablo 3. <laughs> <laughs> I never have. I played the I played the PC version for like like 8,000 hours or something ridiculous, but the console I've never touched it cuz I just don't game on console really. That's I wish I had a better answer for it, man, but like I don't know. That's on them. Right. So Thor, uh, just uh programming wise, what would you say is the most challenging project you've worked on personally? Is the one you lost sleep over? Oh, it's definitely Heartbound. 
Yeah, it's it's so complicated because I have to manage all those routes and timelines all the time. And it's it's a programming challenge sometimes. I guess it was a programming challenge in the beginning. It's not really a programming challenge anymore. I've built all the frameworks for it. But developing those frameworks took about a year, you know, to build everything out and like make sure that everything worked. And then I, I kind of add little piecemeal modules and stuff to it all the time. But it's it's mostly kind of settled code now. But man, was that tough to set up in the first place to make sure that I could do that efficiently. As a result, you know, I've I've made it so the game works on integrated graphics from like 10 years ago. We ran it on a smart fridge. That was oh, hilarious. <laughs> we ran it on an Android watch. So like we know it works great, you know, but like getting there was pretty rough. In the beginning, it was not very good. So best programming advice you've been given and who gave it to you? Best programming advice I've been given. I don't think I've ever really gotten programming advice. John Romero said the same exact thing. Yeah, <laughs> said nobody think, wants to it, give you any advice. <laughs> no one ever wants to give you any advice. Because like, you get to this point where people are like, "Oh, that's the programmer guy. I'm not going to tell him what to do." And like, yeah. that's it. And like, I went from teaching myself stuff to teaching other people stuff, and then they just don't want to tell you what to do anymore. And like, that's it. And it's funny because sometimes people will give me, you know, feedback on stream. They're like, why would you build that system that way? And I was like, oh, here's the reasons that I structured the system like this. Here's why. I, here's what the rules generally are, the standards for this. This is why I broke those rules. This is the outcome of that. And this is the reasoning behind it. And they go, oh, you're right. I, I won't say anything anymore. It's like, oh, well, OK. Because, <laughs> like, there are rules in programming. There's There's general standards. You shouldn't break the rules and things like that. But once you get to a point where you're like, OK, I know what the rules are. I know what the effects of breaking these rules are. I know how this is going to affect the game in the end, the client, how it's going to affect performance. I'm going to break the rules here so I can do this really cool thing you otherwise wouldn't be able to do. And once you start doing that, then you turn into like wizard magic mode and like people don't know how programming works anymore and they, they don't understand. And then they're like, well, yeah, yeah, just look at that guy, whatever he's doing, you know? <laughs> right. And they, they just don't give you feedback anymore. That's it. That's all it is. You get the deep magics is just learning how to break the rules, I guess. And why? Seen any good movies lately? Mm, I went. This is this is not even relevant because it's not like a movie that came out recently. I I went back and watched Six String Samurai again this year, which is my favorite movie of all time. I love that movie so much, and uh, I, I find myself more and more going back and watching older movies because I don't like a lot of the new movies that are coming out. With you. I really, just with you. I just. I just don't want to see it anymore. Like I, I, I like a lot of the older stuff, and maybe that's that's like old man yells at cloud in a way, I guess. <laughs> but like. I don't know, man. I, I kind of liked the old... I, I like practical effects in movies. Yeah. I think practical effects for me are like way more interesting. I think I think that's the thing that gets me. Because when it's all CG, I'm just like, okay. Like, yes. You know, I, I see the systems that you use for this. I understand. And use like, CG it's not, to augment the practical effects. That's what you should be doing. Bingo. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you, you go to Flight of the Navigator, right? Flight of the Navigator did that brilliantly at the time absolutely incredible a lot of that was practical a lot of people didn't realize that a lot of that was practical like that kind of stuff blows me away it's really really cool and we don't really see a lot of practical effects now like uh, one of my favorite movies is dark crystal dark crystal is amazing you know it's it's because all of those are puppets you know like that's some that's some people don't realize it's jim henson man like yeah, it is. <laughs> that's, that's some wild stuff that's some really cool stuff and and you know you see today and it, it all be animated It'd be 100% animated or it'd be CGI for all those characters. And I I like the puppeteering. I like the practical effect. I like stuff like like that. Or 
it, it, as far as CGI goes, I think Rocky Horror Picture Show is kind of the limit for me where they have like, you know, a couple of CGI things here and there and the rest <laughs> of it's just, you know, practical weirdness. You know, I enjoy that a lot. This is another qu- question I like to ask everyone, Thor. Have you ever had an experience that you would consider supernatural or paranormal? Dude, 100%. So when I was a kid and I, I used to go ghost hunting and stuff, right? And I still have no solution to this. And I know it doesn't make any sense. And I know the human being is like a, a two pounds of fat instead of a bone mech with meat armor. Like, I get it. We're weird. Everything that we do is weird. And we can have weird hallucinations and shit. But I was in the kitchen at my dad's house when I was growing up. And we had gotten home from ghost hunting the day before. And we didn't find anything. Because, you know, we go out with, like, night vision cameras and shit and have some fun. And um, I hear my brother walk into the room behind me because I'm facing away from the entrance to it because I'm cooking. And I, you, you know, in like footsteps, you can kind of tell like who the footsteps are, you know who it is based on the weight that it is. I was like, oh, it's my brother. And I turned around, I was like, hey, and there was like a tall shadow thing standing in front of me in broad daylight and I blacked out. And I was like, oh, well, I thought it was going to die. And then I blacked out and I wake up on the floor and I turn off the stove and I walk out in the living room where my dad is. And I was like, hey, I think I need to go to the doctor. And I explained to him what I had just seen. I was like, I'm clearly hallucinating. Like, this isn't real, obviously. And he goes, don't worry about it. I was like, why? He's like, we're all seeing it. And my stepmom, she's like super into witchcraft. So she got a, a sage wand and like burned it all around the windows and everything like that. And that was the solution to it. And I still have no answer for what any of that means. That doesn't make any damn sense to me even today. But it's the one time where I was like, okay, well, that one can't be explained. Mostly because if it was just me, it'd be like, okay, you're hallucinating. Something's wrong, right? But if multiple people are seeing the same thing, either he was straight up bullshitting me and my stepmom went along with it all the way or he was telling the truth and I have no solution to this. I, I'll never know. I'll never, he'll never tell me. So it sounds like you need to call uh, Art Bell. Yeah, I know, right? That's, <laughs> that was the only thing I've ever had where I was like, oh, that doesn't make any damn sense. Like, all right, fine. You know, and now today I'm like, Probably hallucinates, probably screwing with me, but I'll never know, you know? <laughs> and that definitely counts. Well, Thor, just to put a bow on this thing here, and I'll let you get out of here, uh, anything on the horizon you can share? Yeah, so I'm I'm going to be finishing Heartbound pretty soon here. I'm almost done with Animus, which is like the hardest chapter I've ever made for it. And once I'm done with that, I'm going to be working on a new game, which is a uh, monster battler. We want to do a monster collection battler game, but cosmic horror, because I really, really like psychological horror. And cosmic horror is completely based around the idea that you can't see the monster because to perceive it, to experience the monster, the, the true thing that it is, is to die, right? So you can't, you can't do that. So that lends itself very well to psychological horror because you can't see the monster directly. And I love that. I really, really, really like that kind of, you know, that kind of fear is not showing the thing directly, showing the influence of the thing or the echoes of the thing or the drippings of the thing coming into your world. And uh, we want to do a, a monster collection game based around that and like, you know, have battles and all kinds of things and make an, make an RPG out of it. Kind of like same realm as like Shin Megami Tensei or, uh, or Yokei Watch, you know, or the old Pokemon games. That's the kind of stuff that I really enjoy. Before they started adding wristbands that make Pokemon giant and all the other weird <laughs> bullshit that went along with it. Like I, I just want to go back to the roots of that and just make a creepy monster collector game, you know? Yeah, man, that sounds great. I'm looking forward to checking that out. Uh, Thor, thank you for giving me some of your time, man. I appreciate you. Yeah, dude. Sick. Yeah, I'll blast it out to the community when you do. Appreciate you, man. It's nice talking to you, man. Nice talking yeah, to you, too. you too. I'm a big fan. Keep going, man. Yeah. <laughs> See you around, dude. All right, folks. That's a wrap. I hope you enjoyed that chat with Thor. As always, thanks for listening, and we'll see you back next time. Monsters, madness, and magic. <laughs>